Hello, New Books and African American Studies listeners. This is your host, Adam McNeil. And today we have the opportunity to speak to Dr. Paul Ortiz, Associate Professor of History at the University of Florida and Director of the University of Florida's Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. And this is a program in Gainesville, Florida. And today we'll be speaking to uh, Dr. Ortiz about his uh, soon-to-be-published book, uh, in African-American and Latinx History of the United States, published by Beacon Press. Welcome to the program, Dr. Ortiz. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you for having me on. It's a real pro- privilege to be able to join you. Absolutely. And, um, like, you know, we're, we're very happy to have you on the program today because, you know, your, your book is definitely a book that was one of those page turners. It really, you know, it, it was a volume that really made me think a lot about how American history is not only taught, but what characters, what particular subjects are really centered and also decentered. And so thank you for your scholarship. And, um, you know, in, in the next couple of minutes, would you be able to tell us a bit about your, your path to this book and kind of kind of your intellectual trajectory and how you got to this particular book? Yes. Well, Adam, it's, and African-American and Latinx history of the United States, you know, my intellectual path to writing the book is complex. You know, there's multiple journeys. One of those journeys is growing up first-generation first college student, you know, Chicano kid growing up in Washington State in California in the 70s. You know, that was one part, growing up in what we call the backlash era and facing a lot of racism and prejudice by angry white folks who blamed Mexican and black people, and usually in the same sense, um, for perceived problems in the society. And so we would often hear growing up, you know, Mexicans steal our jobs and they're lazy. And I think a lot of comedians have played with that trope, right? And they've said, well, we can either steal your jobs or we can be lazy, but we can't really be both, right? Um, another pathway was, was being in special forces in Central America. I'm, I'm from a long, I come from a long lineage of people in the military. My grandfather fought in the Mexican Revolution. We grew up with those stories. In fact, we grew up hearing more about the Mexican Revolution, frankly, than the American Revolution. And getting to Central America and talking to people and seeing the impact of U.S. policies in Central America as a very young man really pushed me to, under, to, to begin to understand American history outside of, uh, outside of the United States and, and realizing and later, it took me many years to process this information. I mean, I didn't get, you know, I didn't come to this understanding as a 22-year-old sergeant in special forces, but I started thinking about this years later, how most histories of the United States are so nationalistic. They're so bound by the territory of the U.S. They're so... There's so much about what it's like to be uh, inside the U.S. And it's so insular. And you even have these phrases like isolationism. And I run these phrases by my students. And, and this is a third pathway that led me to write the book, because when I taught at UC Santa Cruz and now at University of Florida, when I was a grad student at Duke, I work with a lot of students like me, people who are first generation from Latin America from Africa, from the Caribbean. And so when I taught at Santa Cruz, I worked with a lot of LA students, 
uh, here in, in Gainesville. I work with a lot of students from Miami-Dade. They're Haitian, they're Cuban, they're Venezuelan, and they're like, we don't see ourselves in history books. And when topics like isolationism come up in our texts, our history texts, or topics like Manifest Destiny, they're like, these students are like, we don't believe in isolationism because the reason we're here is because of U.S. foreign policies. And so this notion of the U.S. as kind of insular has never you know, struck me as particularly compelling. So I guess the book comes together trying to tell the story of the impact of Latin America, the impact of the Caribbean, the impact of Africa on the development of the United States, in particular, these democratic freedom struggles, which are such a big part of our, our shared diasporas. Right. And um, I definitely see that in in the first uh, you, you know, in your intro and such like that as well, you're, you're, you're really centering tone on, on those particular histories. And, you know, as someone who's actually born, you know, and raised in Florida, um, you know, you, you know, the American revolution isn't exactly, you know, something that's pressed upon you. Like I, you know, where I am in Boston, Massachusetts, where it's, you know, you're, <laughs> you can't grow without learning about it, but, um, you know, learning and being around people from a wide swath of, of colonized uh, uh, nations in the present makes you really understand that there are so many different factors that brought about the contemporary United States that we live in. And yet by the present political moment, also coinciding with uh, how history books are written as well, you would almost never know until today, until this book. Well, and part of it, too, Adam, as you know, from growing up in Florida, this book comes from a sensibility of people who live on the margins, people who live on the outside of the society, people who grew up in places like Miami-Dade or San Diego or even a place like, you know, El Paso, Texas, where my family came in, uh, were refugees from the Mexican Revolution. And... So basically what happened is how the story developed is my family arrived in 1914. Um, my grandfather fought in the revolution and they settled first in El Paso, but then moved into Houston. And my father regaled me with these stories. Right? My father was born during the Great Depression and basically telling me these stories of growing up, seeing Jim Crow signs. And but they, they're not the colored and white signs that we often see depicted. They were, you know, they included Mexicans and very often Puerto Ricans as well. And so a typical segregation sign in Houston, Texas would say, you know, no Mexicans, no Negroes, no dogs allowed. Um, a typical segregation sign in South Florida would say no Mex, you know, no, no Puerto Ricans, uh, no Mexicans allowed. In other words, a much more complex version of white supremacy was uh, was happening. And this is true also in the American Southwest as well, where there weren't as many African-Americans, but often the markers of segregation were aimed directly at people of Mexican and indigenous uh, ancestry. So, you know, growing up, hearing these stories, experiencing some of them kind of on the margins, if you will, and then talking to people outside of the United States. I mean, I remember these discussions I would have in Panama and Venezuela, in Colombia and other places in the early mid 80s. 
And people would tell me about the United States and they would tell me stories and their thoughts about the U.S., which did not match with my understanding of American culture. I mean, number one, you know, when you talk about the U.S. as being a country that's all you always valued freedom and democracy, that's not the experience of most of the world's peoples vis-a-vis the United States. And that's reflected in the book because one of the stories that was that confronted me, I mean, when I was in Latin America in the 80s, I, I, people would talk about Augusto Sandino. And I would hear about this man everywhere. Many of your listeners will be familiar with Sandino. But again, when I was 20 years old in Central America, all I knew about him was that he was this great revolutionary fighter. And I thought he was still alive. I thought he was a person we were fighting against right then in 1984-85. And then I only found out later, well, no, actually, he fought against an earlier generation of U.S. invasion of Nicaragua. And that people continued to honor his legacy and write about him. I saw murals about him everywhere I went in, in, in Central America. And, and then years later, reading black newspapers from the 1920s and learning that African-Americans, I, you know, idolized Augusto Sandino. They lifted him up. They, they talked about Augusto Sandino in Central America as a person who was fighting against white supremacy in, in much the same way that black people in Florida or Pittsburgh or Oakland were fighting against white supremacy in the 1920s. And so they were connecting the struggle against U.S. imperialism with the struggle against Jim Crow uh, segregation. So th- this was very eye-opening for me uh, as, as a historian. Yeah, and, and you know, that particular story is, is a, a large narrative of how you know, you grow up and, and you learn about particular historical figures and yet the not like the actual depth of knowledge about them is not exactly, you know, always the same over, you know, time and place. Um, and so, you know, definitely uh, that's that's a great grounding and understanding for really your personal connection to the story and how you get there. But also when it comes to uh, the narrative that you really tell in this in this book. And so, um, so getting started with the actual uh, chapter set up with this book, you start out with your first chapter being the Haitian Revolution and the birth of emancipatory internationalism, 1770s, 1820s. Now, you know, a lot of people will know, you know, you spoke about, you know, uh, the, the different students, I mean, Haitian and others uh, of, the, of the overall Caribbean uh, nation areas. But it's it's interesting because the Haitian Revolution uh, is is such a such an important revolution, and in many ways was the most revolutionary of the revolutions in the age of revolution. Um, and so I definitely think that uh, you starting out the uh, your your actual book as far as the chapters go with that is great. And so could you talk to us about uh, this particular uh, a story that you tell in that? Ch- in that chapter? Yes, Adam. It's, I felt that the more research I did, the more I dug into the archives, the more I read newspapers from really, especially the 1790s to the 1820s, I slowly came to realize that the Haitian revolution is just as decisive in the development of the United States and the Americas as the American revolution. And it's, it's true for a few different reasons. One is that the Haitians do what 
the U.S. Americans don't do. They abolish slavery. They set up a republic, which becomes a sanctuary for people fighting European oppression, European colonialism, uh, really for the rest of that century. So, so Haiti, uh, Haiti defeats the French, the British, and the Spanish in succession. They established the Republic in 1804. And really from that point on, people in the United States who want freedom, you know, especially enslaved people, look to Haiti as a beacon of liberty. And there are numerous slave revolts, some that we know about, some that are very well known. Uh, Theses Rebellion, um, the, the Buenco Bay Rebellion in, Las, in, in Louisiana, uh, and others, Gabriel's Rebellion in Virginia, North Carolina. These all happen in the early 19th century, and they're inspired by the Haitian Revolution. And African-Americans begin to look to Haiti more than they look to Washington, D.C., more than they look to Europe for ideas about freedom and liberty. And you'll often find when when African, when African enslaved Africans are able to commandeer ships, uh, say, off the coast of Baltimore that are, are on their way, slave ships on their way from Baltimore, say, to Savannah or to New Orleans, if they're able to seize control of the ship, they're trying to head to Haiti. And because everyone knows, everyone understands for oppressed people, Haiti is a beacon of liberty from, from 1804 onward. And to people in power, though, in the United States, in France, in Britain especially, Haiti is a contagion of liberty. And these are the terms that are used. You know, it's either a beacon of liberty if you're oppressed and you're looking for freedom, or it's a contagion if you're trying to build a slave republic. One of the things I mentioned in that first chapter is you have to understand the U.S. is trying to expand slavery. They're trying not only to spread slavery to the West, but they send expeditions of men into Central America to try to reestablish slavery in Central America. The United States has many political leaders who want to take over Cuba. This is before the Civil War and take over their very profitable sugar plantations. And so there's these battles between freedom and oppression that, or, or what I call racial capitalism, borrowing from Cedric Robinson, these battles are just so amazing. And, and they're happening in this early period when the Constitution is being framed, when the nation is figuring out what kind of country it's going to be, when the, the Naturalization Act of 1790 says in the United States that to become a naturalized citizen, you have to become white. And Haiti becomes a, um, again, if you're, if, if you're an oppressed person, Haiti's inspiration. If you're in power, you're terrified of it. You, you want to literally create an, an embargo, a physical embargo around the island, but also an intellectual kind of mental embargo or a quarantine, I guess would be a better term. Right. And so when it comes to that particular development, you also see how men are uh, American statesmen uh, who, uh, you know, they, they, they obviously, <laughs> because of people like Jefferson and others, they have a uh, very, uh, unfortunate relationships with not only slavery, but also looking at, um, as you say, Haitians, um, as a force that can impede on their, on, on the racial capitalism that they are building upon for the American nation. Um, and yet, 
when you look at the revolutions that are going on throughout uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, you're seeing folks that are looking to the Haitian Revolution as as a triumphant uh, uh, matter, right? And, and you're seeing people really, as you say, really take take it to heart and really want to build upon that as well um, within yes. their within their particular confines, but also how that affects them intellectually and and such like that as well. Um, and, and it really goes to show the importance of solidarity in this story too. It's actually, it's, it's, it's exactly that. The importance of solidarity, the transition from the early 19th century, you know, as Haiti as a foundation. And then when you go forward just a few decades and you, you come to the Mexican war of independence and by this point, the U.S. has a number of choices to make. You know, one is the United States. And really, th- this is a story particularly about African-American and Latinx people, but it really is an attempt to revise our understandings of American history. And what I try to show Adam in these two early chapters in particular is the U.S. has a choice to make in the early 19th century. It is part of a larger world bounded by countries which are abolishing slavery. Mexico, the Mexican War of Independence, which is chapter two of the book, from the very outset of the Mexican War of Independence, a strong tendency within within that Mexican freedom struggle is to abolish slavery, but also cast uh, distinct or cast prejudices against indigenous people. The British are moving towards abolition. The French are moving back towards abolition. It's only the United States, in many ways, among those major uh, countries, which I just mentioned, which is which is actually strengthening slavery. And this puts the U.S. at loggerheads with not just the European powers, not just Mexico, but also most Native American uh, nations and tribes, particularly, you know, as you know, this from from Florida, not one, but three seminal wars are fought uh, a big part of the reason those wars are fought are Native Americans trying to hold back the frontier, you know, the, 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 the creeping uh, uh, to the south and to the west of slavery. And the radical abolitionist movement picks this up. And so if you look at Henry Garnett, for example, um, I'm writing a piece right now about him. People are just so astonished. You have this man who understands quickly that's the, the struggle against slavery is not a national struggle. It's an international struggle. And when the Mexican War of Independence really takes off in the 1810s, you have essentially people from Mexico trying to make connections, to trying to contact James Madison, trying to convince people like John Quincy Adams, hey, our struggle here is against European tyranny, the same as your struggle was in 1776. And at that point, I would argue the U.S. has a choice to make. You know, the leadership, people like Adams, people like Madison, and they make the wrong choice. Um, And, you know, as a historian, you have to be careful because, I mean, everyone knows eventually that the U.S. will invade Mexico. But I try to build up a a lot of contingency and to, to remind people, hey, these leaders had choices. James Madison had a choice. John Quincy Adams had a choice. They could have supported the Mexican War of Independence against Spanish oppression, they chose not to do so because of their uh, their attachment to slavery and racial capitalism. 
And that, but see, they were warned even at that early point. People like Garnett, people like Frederick Douglass basically started telling American leaders, oh, if you don't move to abolish slavery now, a terrible, terrible war is on the horizon. Mm, and, and I love how you spoke about choice. Because so many times when we speak about our the early leaders of the United States, it's typically with a they were men of their time. It is, you know, you know, slavery was bad, but you know, it. And here's the thing: it's always a but. Uh, you know, but it. They were men of their time. They, you know, but but the, but the problem is, it's like there's a reason why not everybody made that same same decision because at the end of the day. Um, they made a choice. They made, as you say, they made particular choices that really they could have made others. And because, yeah, and I and I really enjoy that part of the book because it it really it, it made at least for me as a reader it made me think that we all have decisions and we're all going to be judged on those decisions at some point. But more importantly to take away their ability to make those choices, you know, as historians and as people who are, are writing these stories out for the broad public to let them know that, no, these folks didn't make choices and it's important to, to tell it how it is. And, or as Malcolm would say, make it plain. Make it plain. Yeah. Well, and you see that within the Adams, you know, the Adams family, you have John Quincy Adams, you have John Adams, you have Charles Francis Adams. And I didn't have a chance to put all of that, um, correspondence into the book, but the reader can see some of it. And there's arguments even within that dis most distinguished family. You have, you know, you have two American presidents there and you have leading diplomats and people are saying, shouldn't we look at the liberation struggles of Mexico and the Caribbean as having a, you know, as being akin, as, as being connected to our struggle? against British imperialism. And John Adams says pretty decisively, no, we should not. John Quincy Adams says pretty decisively, no, our struggle was essentially a, a struggle for, for freedom and equality. And their struggle is something we don't recognize. They, the term they used that, that Adams used was that the struggle in Mexico and in the Caribbean against the Spanish was more like a servile war. Uh, which harkens back to the ways that in which Europeans were educated about the Roman Empire. When, when, you're, when, when your listeners hear Servile War, now we're talking about like the Spartacus Rebellion during the Roman Empire. And in other words, what Adams was doing was, was trying to kind of deflate the importance of these liberation struggles in Mexico, Latin America, and the Caribbean and say our struggle in the United States was, was a real war of independence. And these others in the global South, what I call the global South in the book, are not at our level, you know, and we shouldn't get involved in them and we should stay away from them. And we don't, and, and most of all, and this is the reason why John Quincy Adams defends General and, um, Andrew Jackson's brutal invasion of Florida which culminates in the first Seminole War. This is the reason that John Quincy Adams defends Jackson, even though Jackson engaged in atrocities uh, against Seminoles and against former slaves in Northern Florida. And Adams says, we've got to do this. We've got to secure the Southern border uh, of slavery. Otherwise, 
these people are going to continue to welcome escaped slaves. Our economy is going to collapse. Now, John Quincy Adams is a poignant figure in the book because two decades later, when he steps down as president, he's actually defeated by Jackson. And he does something quite unusual from our vantage point. He, he runs for Congress. And John Quincy Adams now is a congressman in the late 1830s. And then he becomes an anti-slavery advocate. Then he begins speaking out against the U.S. manifest destiny driven by the desire to bring slavery into uh, what had been Mexico. Um, but by that point, the damage has been done. But you're right. I mean, history is is making choices. And Frederick Douglass, if you move into chapter uh, three and uh, uh, the eve of the Civil War, Frederick Douglass is telling Anyone he can talk to, and, and not just Douglas, but other leaders of the abolitionist movement, are telling them if you wage, if you continue to wage war against the Seminoles, if you continue to wage war against people in Latin America to placate the Southern slave power, then eventually they're going to come for you. And Douglas was so crystal clear about this. He said that. <laughs> You know, by placating the filibusters, the people that wanted to, to take over the Spanish slavery in Cuba, all you're doing is you're you're essentially. I mean, your 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 listeners will be familiar with during World War II, you had appeasement, right? Everyone knows, you know, it was, appeasement towards the Nazis was bad. Well, Douglas is saying the same thing in the 1840s and 50s. Appeasement towards the Southern slave holder power is really bad. And and the problem is they're not just in the South. They're people in New York. They're people on Wall Street who benefit, who who make the money off of slavery, who make the money off of land speculation. And Douglas says, as long as you appease these people, they're eventually it's going to come back to bite you. And, and it does in the bloodiest civil war in human history. Right. And 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 as you say, uh, uh, Garnett and, and Douglas and others are trying to use and most people don't even know like douglas was a minister for for a brief time and so they both use their uh their voices and and the power of prophecy over the united states to say that if you don't get your act together you're you're going to have to pay and so uh and, and as you say you paid with the bloodiest civil war in human history and so you know i and i definitely think that you know the internationalization of the civil war is important because when you look at um, a scholarship on the expansion that's going on in the 1850s, pushing towards the Civil War, you're having uh, Southerners and, and many other um, and many other Democratic factions in the nation saying that, "Hey, let's try to expand the slave trade. Let's bring that back." Uh, well, technically, it really never ended, but uh, but um, yeah. but at least they're they're outright complicity anyway, and so. You know, you, you're seeing the infiltration, you know, the continuing uh, from, you know, the Mexican-American War to other areas of the Caribbean and Latin America. And so, um, you know, the internationalization is always not only internationalization of the Civil War, i.e. really slavery um, as well and trying to extend the, the boundaries of it. Um, and so I definitely appreciated that chapter. And so and also one of the parts I didn't even realize is that in your next chapter, when you talk about the global visions of reconstruction and, and the Cuban solidarity movement, I, I, it did not even occur to me about the fact that I knew Brazil ended slavery around like 1886 or something like that. But I forget, I, I absolutely forgot about Cuba 
And I had no clue that there was. So when I read Cuban anti-slavery committee, I think it was, I was like, huh? I had no clue. And I'm and I study abolitionism. And yet clearly I, I have a lapse in judgment because I didn't extend it like Douglas and others said to past 1865. So well, join the club, Adam, because to be honest with you, I, I you know I went through college, I went through through graduate school, and years of, of thinking I knew this topic about abolitionism. And then when I I, I really literally stumbled across the fact that many African-American abolitionists, and you mentioned two of the foremost ones, uh, Henry Holland Garnett, uh, also Frederick Douglass, but many others, which the readers of this book will, will be introduced to, which I only was introduced to, you know, just a few years ago doing this research and stumbled across the fact that at the end of the Civil War, and we have to kind of think back to 1865, the, you know, the, the day of Jubilee, the, the celebrations in West Florida, you know, we still celebrate emancipation of May 20th. That's the day the Union Army liberated Tallahassee. Um, we have Ju- Juneteenth. We have these this amazing, it's interesting now, this great renaissance of emancipation celebrations in the United States. But one of the things that caught my eye, Adam, was when I was looking at some of these celebrations, and so often people would say, and these are African-American leaders of, of the abolitionist movement. And, and in between the, the, the joy, the family reunifications, the, the, the sorrow, the, the incredible, the tears of joy, people would say, what about Cuba? What about Brazil? You know, slavery hasn't really ended. And people like Garnett were so far seeing. And one of the things that Garnett said is it's great for us to celebrate our freedom here. And Garnett, among all people, I mean, he helped recruit for the Union Army during the war. He barely escaped with his life. An angry mob chased him through the streets of New York from the draft riots. He was one of the first, first people long before John Brown, who suggested an armed uprising of slaves. Um, and so, but now it's 1865. And Garnett is saying, why are we disbanding our anti-slavery societies? Why are we folding up the tent of abolitionism? Y'all, we have just begun. We have enslaved brothers and sisters all over the world. And just as they supported us during our moment of, of suffering and need, we need to now support people who are still fighting slavery in the rest of the world. Now, Cuba shows up very strongly because there's a major war. We call it, you know, U.S. historians refer to it as a 10-year war. And almost immediately, refugees from Cuba, uh, some of them African descent, some of them Creole, mixed race, end up, you know, they're fleeing from Spanish tyranny. Uh, When you fight the Spanish in the 1870s, you don't want to become a prisoner of war. And so many of the people fleeing from the Spanish end up in, in Key West, they end up in Tampa, they end up in, in New York, and they begin to connect to people like Garnett. And that's where, where Garnett leads the formation of the Cuban Anti-Slavery Society. But then there are other major, there, there are many other African-American anti-slavery societies that, that coalesce around this notion that just because we've been free here, uh, doesn't mean that that we've won. And that's where the notion of emancipatory internationalism comes from. I see it as a major threat throughout U.S. history where people are trying to create links 
between freedom struggles in the U.S., Central America, the Caribbean, Africa, and, and all throughout the world. Right, and um, that 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 sense is very important because sometimes in our contemporary uh, context, we forget uh, about the struggles and the oppressions that cross racial and, and, and gender and class lines, but also national lines too. And so I definitely appreciate that contribution that you do make uh, with this particular book and, and really throughout because the emancipatory internationalism, I think, is a, is a central theme because to be African-American and or uh, Latinx, that is, a, that is really a transnational story uh, in many ways um, because of not only solidarities across national lines, but also just because you live so so close and so near to people, um, in, in many ways because of uh, because of the way policies of, of housing have have really pushed, um, and and that almost pushes us to a certain degree even to the next kind of area when you talk about pushing towards the latter portion of the nineteenth uh, century going into the twentieth too. Yes. If you think of, I mean, I've taught a course called the African Diaspora for many years now, and it's, you know, it's full of literature of people like Franz Fanon, C.L.R. James, Walter Rodney. And I mean, really, C.L.R. James's Black Jacobins, for me, is one of my, you know, it's one of my foundation stones. And I return to that book over and over again, because in Black Jacobins, C.L.R. James gave us a vision of what an internationalist history could look like. You know, he situated the Haitian Revolution in a global context. You know, readers of this book will realize quickly my great debts to people like W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Black Reconstruction. Um, and that kind of sets up the discussion for what you're talking about in Chapter 5. That chapter is titled Waging War on the Government of American Banks in the Global South. And the phrase waging war in the government of American banks, that phrase I borrowed as I borrow so many things from W.E.B. Du Bois. Because when Du Bois was when Du Bois was talking about the struggle to regain the right to vote in the early 20th century, he said black people have to regain the right to vote, not just because it's going to serve our interests, but because without us and the electorate, the U.S. has descended to such a level of corruption that our government is being led by the nose by what he called the government of American banks to infiltrate, to invade, to occupy, to expropriate and steal from people in Central America, from people all across the world. And that, that's that's where. But see, I, I, I learned, Adam, when, when I first encountered those ideas from Du Bois, I thought, wow, Du Bois is really cool. What a genius. You know, what an international. You know, what, what, what an internationalist, what I didn't realize was that his, these great ideas came from popular movements. Du Bois knew about this broad, you know, what Cedric Robinson called the black radical tradition. Du Bois knew that, that these ideas had come out of popular struggles. It wasn't something that, you know, and even James in, in the Black Jacobin says the same thing. When he's talking about the leader of the Haitian Revolution, the military and political leader, Toussaint Louverture, he says the Haitian Revolution, or he says uh, to the effect that, you know, Toussaint Louverture did not make the Haitian Revolution, the revolution made him. And that isn't even the entire truth. And what I'm trying to show in the book is, you know, what I've learned is that 
all of these popular movements, whether it's the civil rights movement in, in that we know about in the 50s and 60s, whether it's the, the farm worker movement, which is a big part of Chapter 6, whether it's the general strike in May 1st, you know, 2006, none of, none of these are led from above, if you will. It's just that we get to know about these movements through individuals, you know, like we mentioned Garnett, we mentioned, you know, and I mentioned later in the book, Cesar Chavez or Dr. Martin Luther King or, you know, Rosa Parks. But in reality, the social movements that are generating the, the energy are, are people by people that we, we don't even know their names. We don't even know where they're from. Right. And, and it's so intriguing that three of the most important works of the entire 20th century were written in the same decade, almost, because you have uh, CLR James's Black Jacobins and Black Reconstruction from Du Bois and Eric Williams's Capitalism and Slavery happening, if I'm not mistaken, all within almost a 10 year period, if not shorter. Um, and, and so all, all literally all three of them were not only historians, but great civic and governmental leaders, considering that Eric Williams would become the uh, first was a was the first black prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, and um, CLR James was a was a broad international activist, and obviously we know about Du Bois here in the states. And so you know those three seminal works are all works that um, really, especially if you include um, the work of Franz Fanon too, are all four internationalist texts that are. Just, just classic works that everybody and anybody has to read, and yet I still have to read because, as you know, Black Reconstruction is a uh, that, that's a, that's a pretty long book. <laughs> it, it is a big book, and but you're right, Adam, to situate those historically. I mean, the, the first three you mentioned are directly come out of the Great Depression, this this horrific worldwide calamity, this crisis of capitalism. All three of those books are rooted in that. Fanon's Wretched the Earth is rooted in the crisis of global war. And so they all come out of the sense of crisis. You know, James talks about as he's finishing Black Jacobins, you know, the, the, the backdrop is this, this terrible global calamity. And everyone knows by, by, by the time James publishes Black Jacobins in 1938, everyone knows that, that world, I mean, World War II has already arrived. You know, the Japanese have already invaded China. And the Nazi movement is already beginning to, to cover Europe. And so those works all come out of crisis and, and they're very important for our own time because we live in a new time of crisis. And some people who have interviewed me about this book have said, oh, we see this as a as a text for, you know, about U.S. history in, in, in the age of Donald Trump. Now, I can assure you, I didn't write it with that that idea in mind. Because I started the book long before the kind of the Trump movement started, but in many ways, you know, racial capitalism, you know, white supremacy, uh, hypernationalism, you know, anti-Mexican, anti-black um, um, hatreds, which are an integral part of the Trump phenomena, Trump movement, um, uh, you know, as you can see in this book, I mean, they're they're simply part of American history. This is why. Trump used that term, make America great again. It wasn't even code language. It was just simply, you know, hey, let's bring the U.S. back to its historical moorings in the Naturalization Act of 1790, in, in the kind of society where only white people can become full citizens, right? 
And that, so in many un, unintended ways, you know, the book becomes a kind of a, 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 a primer, a warning, if you will, let's not romanticize U.S. history. You know, let's stop going back and romanticizing the same figures, Alexander Hamilton, Jefferson, Adams, so on and so forth. They had no love for us today. Um, they wouldn't even tolerate the discussion you and I are having. Um, and so, but let's begin to look where ideas for freedom and equality come from. I mean, in some ways, it's not, it's not as surprising. When I, I gave a talk today to a group of, of students, and I said, if you look at the 19th century and the early 20th century, what are the ideas coming out of Europe, that place that you and I are supposed to idealize and look up to and see as kind of the ideological origins of liberal democracy? Well, what's coming out of Europe during that time, are, you know, it's modern racism, it's apartheid. It's world wars, it's colonialism, it's imperialism, it's genocide. The, the, the regions of the world that are struggling against that are the places that I try to focus on in this book. And I'm trying to explain how the global south and what I refer to as Latin America, Central America, the Caribbean, you know, though, though, that's where these, these ideas, the, what Robin Kelly calls freedom dreams, that's where, that's, you know, that's, that's where the, the most powerful freedom dreams are really coming from people are bringing them into the southwest so for example you know mexican veterans of the civil war are creating these these amazing cinco de mayo celebrations you know and they'll have a banner of Abraham, you know paying homage to abraham lincoln you know celebrating the end of slavery celebrating the mexican contribution you know you have you know you have african americans in baltimore in the early 19th century celebrating the haitian revolution you have uh, people in, in Cuba linking with black people during Reconstruction. You have, I mean, a whole array of things are happening. Uh, but again, I think, you know, Haiti, in a lot of ways, um, remains a centerpiece of U.S. development. And, and again, I'm just reminded of this because I work with a lot of Haitian American students and we have these informal discussions. And, and the recent outburst by President Trump about, you know, Haiti and, and, and African nations being part of, you know, these, the, you know, the, I'm not even going to use the term. Um, it really put, my, put a lot of my students into, you know, into deep depression. And, and it was really appalling. And it caused a lot of fear to hear the leader of their country denigrating their country yet again. And it, it, it's, this is part of the reason why I wrote this book, because I want people to understand how very important and precious those ideas of liberty are that come from, that are brought from people from Haiti, from Central America, uh, from Africa, and that those ideas are the things that really rejuvenate our society. And these are the ideas that President Trump is trying to inoculate us from, trying to quarantine. That's the notion behind the wall between the U.S. and Mexico. Is the U.S. really at war with Mexico still? I mean, that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. And Henry, Henry Garnett in the 1840s and 50s said, I applaud the Mexican people. As a black man, I understand that the Mexican people offer former slaves like me sanctuary, something that I can't find anywhere else in the United States. I can go to Mexico and find it. And this is something that this is a reality in history that when my students read stuff like this, they're stunned. They're like, when we heard the term Underground Railroad, we thought it was Canada and, and Canada only. Right. 
And I say, yeah, Canada was, you know, there was underground railroad there, but there also was underground railroad to Mexico. There was an underground railroad to the Bahamas, you know, when, when the British abolished slavery. And there even was an underground railroad to Haiti. And so let's let's re let's re rejuvenate or recapture the sense of history which in many ways has just been submerged or or propagandized out of right existence. and and I definitely you know propagandized out of existence I think it's important because when we look to how and why you know unionization is so important to this nation's history um I definitely look towards the latter chapters of your book when you talk about so many African-American and, and Latinx um, solidarities that are happening, you know, whilst, you know, the, the, the multiple world wars are occurring when the Cold War and also the civil rights movement is occurring. And um, in, in the last uh, uh, period of our, our time here, definitely, I'd le- definitely love for you to, to be able to uh, situate all of those important. Now, I know it's a big feat. I know it's a big feat. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's definitely an important time frame because like I said, the unionization is so important and, and the, the, the solidarities with so many different, uh, leaders that are going on in this time frame. Um, they really also bring about some differing voices to the story too, and not just King and, and, and Chavez and others. Yeah, exactly. You know, as long as anyone listening to this podcast lives, Black and Latinx peoples will always be working class people primarily. That's our history. That's who we are. That's what what we came, you know, you know, enslaved into this country, uh, you know, migrated into this country, you know, brought under false pretenses, whatever the case may be. When you get to World War II and even earlier in the Great Depression, and I draw heavily upon existing scholars, people like Zergos of Vargas, who's one of my guides and mentors, People, people like you know Rudy Acuna, and a, a tremendous Chicano scholar, to look at these Great Depression struggles of industrial unionization, and to discover that at the the bottom of these new union struggles in the 30s, you're going to find many Chicano, many Mexican, many Cuban American labor activists. You're going to find many Black labor organizers some of whom you've heard before, like you mentioned Dr. King, uh, you mentioned uh, Cesar Chavez, but you'll also find people like Luisa Moreno, who again is someone from the global South. She's from Guatemala and she is active in Florida. She's active in California, organizing cannery workers, organizing industrial workers, and as later has to, had to leave the United States because she is defined as a communist. And Many people who we don't know, uh, some Mexican-American workers were shot down and killed during the Memorial Day massacre, during the little steel strike in Chicago, during the Great Depression. And so when you hear, I I just think that phrase, you know, James Walden Johnson, many thousands gone. Uh, This book, in many ways, just kind of scratches the surface, but it reminds us that not only is much of American history a struggle of working class people against racial capitalism and imperialism, you know, you mentioned the term earlier solidarity. So how do people form solidarity to create the farm worker movement in the 60s? How do they organize basic industry in the 1930s and 40s? How do they bring about what I call a, a potential rebirth of the American working class and wage the largest strike 
in the history of the Americas in 2006. But also, Adam, how do we forget this? Because, you know, when I bring this up and, and I will, I, I teach labor history at the University of Florida and I'll say, and I'll, I'll say, I'm going to talk about the largest strike in the history of the Americas, which happened right here in Florida. And it shut down entire sectors of the Florida economy, especially uh, agriculture. Um, does everyone know what I'm talking to, what I'm referring to? And even my colleagues uh, will say, what are you talking about, Paul? We, the largest strike in the history of the Americas? Aren't you talking about something that happened in the 19th century? And I'm like, no, I'm talking about something that happened in our lifetime. But because, you know, because we're always trained to look away from the working class, we're always trained to see, you know, highly educated people, like you mentioned, Dr. King, his relationship to the movement. And Dr. King obviously is one of the greatest figures in American history. But if you only know what where he's at, you're going to miss this movement that essentially he was just kind of at, at the tip of, of the iceberg. Yeah, it's probably probably had the best way of explaining that. But, you know, essentially, most of these social movements were organized by people who were animated by ideas of freedom, which could be limited to one country. They could be limited to the United States, because in many cases, like people like my ancestors, they weren't from one country. They were from more than one country. And people from the African diaspora are from more than one country. And so when they talked about struggling against you know, what was called the American century in the early post-war period, they were trying to create a new kind of vision of what American citizenship could be. And it wasn't bounded by a border, you know, it was something that much broader that tried to encompass people from the entire hemisphere, because that's where our families are from. Our families are from Haiti, they're from Cuba, they're from Mexico, and we don't leave our traditions behind. And in fact, other diasporas, look at what's happening in the Italian and Irish diasporas now, you have many people in those literary movements saying, and I learned this from, from reading Ishmael Reed, the great, great novelist, uh, many people now in those diasporas are saying, hey, we need to be more like the African diaspora or the Latino diaspora. We need, and you have a lot of Italian writers now relearning or learning in some cases for the first time ever Italian. Um, and trying to kind of recapture their, their right. roots. And, and and that's important because that's how, you know, when you talk about assimilation into a monolithic American culture, quote unquote, um, really that that's this that's the premise that you should leave behind the nation that you came from to assimilate into whatever it is that America has to be able to fully benefit from what America can provide you uh, and or through hard work and which there's no way to really quantify that, but that's a whole nother book for a whole nother uh, story. But, um, but overall, that's a, that's a very good premise because when you look at what is going on in the United States uh, throughout the, the, the latter portion of the 20th century, uh, what you see is that uh, the, the really the American working class is, uh, it, it, things are changing. You know, it's not only internationalism, but you see uh, shifting labor relations with American companies and such like that too. Which, uh, which in in many ways, along with the drug wars and such like that, really shift away from the goals of the civil rights movement to something much much different. 
Yes. The working class is getting hammered, frankly. And, it, you know, throughout much of the book, the book is really based on a, a combination of, of oral histories, you know, the more recent period, uh, archival research, but also a lot of secondary literature. And so I draw upon people like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Angela Davis, Jordan Camp, and others who talk about this thing called neoliberalism. In other words, the backlash against the black freedom struggle, the backlash against the Chicano movement. Again, I, I, that was my youth growing up. I didn't know that I grew up in the backlash era, except for the fact that, you know, my family's living in San Leandro, California, and there's Ku Klux Klan rallies. And so, but this idea that in the 70s and 80s, people in government and in corporations have a very clear sense, and they say this in public if you if you listen, if you look carefully enough. Um, I have a quote, uh, a well-known quote by the chair of the Federal Reserve in the late 70s, appointed by Jimmy Carter. His name is Paul Volcker. Some of your listeners will recognize him. But Paul Volcker, when he's head of the Federal Reserve during the Jimmy Carter administration, says, it, it's no secret that that the standard of the, of the typical American is going to have to decline in order for us to keep the economy working the way we really want it to work. Now, who is we, right? Uh, Paul Volcker has just spent time with, with the Secretary of, of, of Defense. He's been on Wall Street. The consensus among very rich people, what we would call now the 1%, is that the, is that the American working class is going to have to take a lot of hits. And that's exactly what happens in the 70s and 80s. It's a backlash against not only the civil rights movement, you know, not only against uh, the Puerto Rican movement, the Chicano movement, it's really a backlash against the entire American working class. And this is where you have the rise of mass incarceration, deindustrialization, which is a policy decision. It's not something that that's part, you know, it's not a, a inevitable thing. The U.S. decides, you know, the U.S. leaders decide that it's more profitable to shift capital capital to banks and investment firms and, and to real estate. And so there's a very real denigration of the American working class, which you see ongoing today. And this is one of the things that the book kind of, I mean, that's why I really wanted to kind of bring it to that great uh, uh, general strike in 2006 to say that, yes, it was, you know, in California, we called it a day without Mexicans, right? Um, in, in Florida, it was called something else, but I wanted to connect that to the struggle of the working class in the U.S. and to say that, hey, when you say working class, you're not just talking about white people. That That's a problem I have with contemporary journalists who, especially after the Trump um, um, election, when they use the term working class, it becomes another code for white people. That's just not true. The base of the working class in this country has always been among African descent people among people from Latin America, just as much a part of the working class. As and that's important. And that's also why, among many other reasons, why I'm glad that you came on to the podcast today, because um, people need to hear this story. And especially uh, this particular narrative history that uh, reminds me of someone whose uh, uh, passing occurred about eight years ago with a with Howard Zinn. And so um, this definitely is a book that's in line in that kind of tradition um, uh, of scholars. And so um, definitely I appreciate you once again for coming on on, on the program because, um, you know, as I was almost waiting to hear the contemporary nature, uh, especially considering this is the eve of the first uh, State of the Union of, of the 45th president. 
And so um, on the, with that kind of, you know, historical uh, uh, nature, it's, it's very fitting. And I didn't do this on purpose, mind you. It's very fitting that you uh, that we decided to agree upon having the interview on this particular day. Um, and, uh, and yeah, yeah, there's so much more to say that will be left unsaid on that note, <laughs> but, um, but, but yeah, in, in the last couple of minutes that we have you, if you do not mind, we know that, uh, it takes a lot to, to, to write these books, a lot of, a lot of time, effort, emotion, time from the family. Uh, so not to press upon you uh, much, but you, you mentioned this a couple of times, but, uh, can you tell us about what you're working on, um, next after this particular book? Right. That's a really good question. Well, and I'm working, actually, um, I have the great honor of working on a book with my former dissertation advisor, uh, William Chafe. And he, we're, we're working, actually finishing a book now, which is going to be titled Behind the Veil, African-Americans in, in segregation, the Jim Crow South. And it builds upon the oral history work we did as a grad student. And we're trying to understand not only why segregation and Jim Crow became prevailing governmental doctrines, but the struggle against Jim Crow in, you know, before the modern civil rights movement, but also I think similar to African-American Latinx history in the United States, doing kind of a larger epilogue about why certain structures of oppression were not changed, you know, why African-Americans can only go so far. I think, in, in, in this current book um, that's being that's coming out tomorrow, I mean, you know, Ethel Randolph says something very prophetic at the Marshall of Washington in 1963. And what he says is that civil rights and voting are wonderful. You know, we struggle for those things and we have lost many, many, many people in those struggles. You know, many people have been assassinated, many thousands gone. But if we don't have economic security, and if we don't deal with what he called profit-geared automation, then we're going to lose everything. And all these other rights are going to have very little you know, impact unless we have the ability to make a living because we live in a capitalist society. And so part of what um, Bill, uh, Professor Chafe and I are working on this book is you know, what changed, what didn't change. But really, we're going to foreground, again, the oral histories, you know, the narratives of African-American elders who we interviewed in the 1990s and really get their take on what happened in the society, how they created amazing change, but also how a lot of structures of oppression, you know, did not change. Or if they changed, they just changed shape, if you will. Um, so that's that's a book I'm, that I'm uh, currently uh, finishing uh, even as we, we oh, speak. Oh, wow. So this is this is big time news here. So uh, new books in African-American studies. Listeners, you hear that? We got a we got a, a big story on our hands here. So uh, we definitely appreciate uh, Dr. Paul Ortiz, associate professor in history um, at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. Um, and once again, we have been talking to him about his uh, soon to be published tomorrow. A book by Beacon Press, an African-American and Latinx history of the United States. And so thank you so much, Dr. Ortiz, for being on the program today. And um, as I typically say at the end of interviews, please say uh, not goodbye, but see you later.
Thank you, Adam. I really appreciate it. We'll we'll see you later, and I look forward to working with you in the future. Thank you. Absolutely, for it's been again. a definite pleasure. Thank you so much, and uh, talk to you very soon. New books in African American studies, listeners.